This is Guns and Butter. Keep in mind that only since uh, 2001 has the U.S. Treasury become a essential component of the National Intelligence Council with the CIA and the NSA and all these other agencies because the, the Treasury has these financial warfare weapons. Sanctions are a form of economic warfare, which are a form of warfare. And we should be very clear about this. This isn't just, uh, I spank you because you've been a bad boy, Iran, or something like that. This is warfare, financial and economic warfare. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William Engdahl. Today's show, Brzezinski's Ghost, the geopolitics of the Trump administration, China, Russia, and Iran. William Engdahl is an international political analyst and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China. He has an important new book out, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, about how non-governmental agencies have been employed to undermine, destabilize, and overturn national governments, all in the name of spreading democracy. William Engdahl, welcome again. Thank you, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be with you. In your new book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, you detail the setting up of the National Endowment for Democracy as a non-governmental organization that, in fact, is controlled by the CIA and that works to undermine, destabilize, and overturn national governments. We've talked about the takedown of Poland, Russia, Yugoslavia, and the attempted takedown of China's state apparatus. In your Mm -hmm. chapter, A Cold War Ended Not, you quote U.S. Ambassador to the Soviet Union in the Reagan years, Jack Matlock, regarding an agreement that James Baker III made with the USSR. What was the agreement? The agreement was in return for Gorbachev and and the Soviets allowing the peaceful reunification of Germany that uh, James Baker III gave the solemn U.S. promise uh, that there would be no expansion of NATO to the east. And uh, Jack Matlock, who was U.S. ambassador during that process, uh, was very aware of, of what what was uh, said by the U.S. side. And he, he gave this quote that you, you mentioned. We gave categorical assurance to Gorbachev when the Soviet Union existed that if United Germany was able to stay in NATO, NATO would not be moved eastward. And like so many promises, Washington broke that promise massively and began step by step first bringing Poland, the uh, the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, into NATO. Then uh, they brought Hungary and uh, one after the other, all the former uh, Warsaw Pact, you know, members of the Soviet sphere of influence were brought in to NATO. And then uh, by the 2003-2004, Washington, through the National Endowment for Democracy and the Soros Foundation and so forth, 
began to spend millions of dollars organizing a color revolution in Ukraine and in the Republic of Georgia, right on the doorstep of, of the Russian Federation, which was, uh, from a national security standpoint, absolute uh, security uh, threat number one. What was top secret con plan 8022 that Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld put into effect in June of 2004? Keep in mind that uh, around this time when uh, George W. Bush was president, Rumsfeld was defense secretary, that they unilaterally tore up the uh, Moscow agreement on, on uh, intermediate nuclear forces that uh, should have you know, allowed each side to begin downbuilding their nuclear arsenals after the end of the Cold War. Why do you need to be armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons that are getting old? And Com Plan 8022 was approved as a top secret order for the U.S. Armed Forces to be ready for a global strike capability and uh, that the Com Plan is contingency plan and it was for a preemptive nuclear war potentially against Russia. So this was, you know, this was back to the Cold War on, on steroids, if you will, this Con Plan 8022. It got very little discussion, very little debate. Uh, but this was part of the offensive uh, Bush doctrine that was actually written in uh, 1992 by Paul Wolfowitz. But the Bush doctrine said any nation or group of nations that challenges or potentially can challenge U.S. global domination, uh, we can decide to make a preemptive war. They don't have to do anything, just exist and be uniting like China and Russia are doing today. And uh, we can decide to blow them off, off of the face of the earth. So... This is pretty scary stuff, and most Americans uh, are completely uh, unaware of the fact that this existed under the Bush junior presidency. In your new book, Manifest Destiny, you describe <laughs> the fake NED and NGO democracy apparatus orchestrating both the Ukraine Orange Color Revolution of 2004 and the Georgian Rose Revolution, which you've briefly mentioned. Did both of these regime changes follow the standard fake democracy movement script? Very much. The Soros Foundation was massively involved in uh, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. The protesters that, that brought uh, Yushchenko in, into office. They had uh, election poll monitors, exit poll monitors that were specially trained by the National Endowment for Democracy grants. And uh, they covered every single angle of this. CNN, I, I talked with a uh, journalist who was in Kiev at the time of the Orange Revolution. And he said there was an empty square when he was there. He was you know, trying to find the best place to cover the events. And there was an empty square, but already CNN had, you know, these big camera crews have tracks like railroad tracks where they zoom in and zoom out. 
and they had pre-arranged for their camera tracks to be in this empty square because they were informed in advance by by uh, the U.S. NGO apparatus running these protests where where it was going to be. So it completely was an, uh, right down to the logo, you know the. Uh, the orange revolution is like a Madison Avenue uh, theme revolution, the same as, as in Georgia. In Georgia, it was the Rose Revolution, Saakashvili. And in both cases, these were people who Washington had handpicked, uh, Yushchenko and Saakashvili in Georgia. They had been handpicked beforehand. Saakashvili was uh, selected out of Columbia Law School in New York City earlier. And uh, Yushchenko's wife was actually an American citizen who was in the Reagan State Department. So this is, you know, this was pretty much a, a done deal. And both of those governments, when they were brought in under dubious circumstances, said, we want to join the European Union and we want to join NATO. And were that to happen, that would be just look at a map and you'll see. What, the, what this means for the security and the national security militarily of, of the Russian Federation. It's, it's endgame. So this was really a highly provocative step by the U.S. government. Wasn't the Soros Foundation deeply involved in both the Ukrainian Orange Revolution of 2004 and the more recent fascist takedown of democratically elected Yanukovych in 2014. Yes, the Soros uh, is called the Renaissance Foundation in Ukraine actually was active when it was part of the Soviet Union. They were one of the few NGOs that managed to wiggle their way in there through what means one can only speculate, but they spent millions and millions of dollars for the Orange Revolution, according to uh, uh, journalistic accounts, and uh, to the Maidan Square protests of, of 2013-2014, which brought in a literally a neo-Nazi uh, ragtag government of more corrupt than the one that was going to join the Russian-Eurasian Economic Union uh, of Yanukovych. Uh, the Poroshenko I'm talking about, Viktor Poroshenko, the current president. And Soros and the National Endowment for Democracy, Victoria Nuland, who was Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eastern Europe and the Middle East, uh, Turkey including, uh, at the time, and married to one of the leading neocon, uh, Kagan is his name, uh, neocon uh, writers and propagandist activists. Uh, she literally micromanaged the coup d'etat, and, and uh, this was said by uh, none other than George Friedman of Stratford, a Pentagon consulting uh, out of Austin, Texas, but very, very well connected. And Victoria Newland at a certain point mentioned in passing that the U.S. government had spent $5 billion on bringing democracy to Ukraine. Now, those are American taxpayer dollars bringing not democracy, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is this is fake democracy. This is uh, democracy as cognitive dissonance. The Ukrainians uh, didn't have a clue what was going on, except they were so fed up with the corruption. But then 
when the uh, Pravi sector, the, these neo-Nazis uh, came into the government and the militias and so forth, they began parading the streets with baseball bats and terrorizing elderly people and, and uh, uh, normal citizens and taking their apartments in some cases, I know of personally. So the aim of it was not to create stable democracy in Ukraine. The aim was to create chaos in the one country that stood between Russia and especially Germany and the European Union, to break those pipeline links uh, for energy through Ukraine that went back to the Soviet era and turn Ukraine into a, a lawless failed state, which essentially it is today. And they did very well on that. Presently, there has been a revolution of sorts in Armenia. Does the current situation in Armenia reflect a typical NGO color revolution or something else? How do you analyze the change in government in Armenia, and what are the stakes there? The stakes are, are huge because Armenia is a member of the Eurasian Economic Union that's dominated by the Russian Federation and Kazakhstan, Belarus, uh, and so forth. And Armenia, were it to come into a NATO orbit, would be a major strategic setback for the uh, Russian-China uh, Silk Road, the economic Silk Road infrastructure projects that are that are underway. And in my estimation, it was a color revolution, Washington financed, but it was done in a more clever way than certainly the Ukrainian or the uh, Georgian ones were. The uh, man who's now prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, he was first a journalist and uh, was writing about corruption in government and so forth. And the point about Armenia is the corruption and the economic stagnation is all too true. And therefore, it was possible to get mass civil disobedience uh, protests on the streets. And when, when uh, Sargisan, the former prime minister, made a majority vote in parliament through his coalition to change the constitution so that he had been president and had the power as president, but then he had to end his terms uh, according to the constitution. So they changed and made the prime minister the center of power and he became prime minister. So that, you know, was a little bit obvious for most people. And, and uh, Pashinyan, who was very, very well coached, he, he you know, didn't miss a, a, a trick to call people out and so forth. He declared a national strike outside of parliament and uh, blocking of all the streets, the subways, the airports and so forth. I'm speaking with independent writer and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, Brzezinski's Ghost, the geopolitics of the Trump administration, China, Russia, and Iran. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Then if you look a little bit into it, you find that when they called this uh, general strike, the, the opposition then, when they called the general strike, there was a petition circulated that NGOs signed an open letter to the government warning 
that they saw probability of government-backed uh, agent provocateurs, disruptors, and warned not to uh, disrupt the peaceful demonstrators. And the call was signed by George Soros Open Society Foundation, Armenia, and by another Soros entity called the Helsinki Committee of Armenia. And the National Endowment for Democracy was engaged in spending uh, tens of thousands of dollars, a lot of money in the depressed Armenian economy, for projects such as, this is one, one example, how Georgia, where we have this color revolution, benefits from its association with the European Union, how Armenia does not get similar advantage from the Russian-Eurasian Economic Union. And then in another case, the NED, National Endowment, the CIA's uh, surrogate there as an NGO, funded the Armenian Times newspaper to create so-called independent news. I would call it fake news, but U.S. State Department propaganda. And just uh, in the days leading up to his successful becoming of prime minister, because finally with all the protests bringing the country to a stop, uh, the former government resigned and opened the way for Pashinyan to, to, to step in as, as interim prime minister until elections. And Pashinyan was in regular contact with the assistant secretary of state for European Eurasian affairs, the replacement of Victoria Newland named Wes Mitchell. And uh, Mitchell stated publicly that the U.S. is looking forward to work closely with the new government of Pashinyan. So I think we can say pretty safely that the U.S. Uh, fake democracy apparatus, the NGOs, democracy NGOs and, and so forth, were up to their eyeballs in the regime change in Armenia. Now, they've been very careful so far in meeting with Putin and saying Armenia does not have any idea to leave the Eurasian Union. Their economy is completely dependent on trade with Russia, so they'd be crazy to do that. But uh, I think you've got a fifth column government in Armenia that's going to make a lot of problems in the future for, for uh, Russia's Eurasian uh, expansion. Russia appears to have had a hands-off policy toward internal Armenian politics. Do you think this has been a mistake on the part of the Russian Federation? I think realistically, there was little that they could do at that point. It's not like the Soviet Union where they can send, you know, send the tax in. This is 2018, this is not uh, 1988. And I think there was simply little they could do except to let it play out and uh, uh, try to figure out how to make the best out of, out of a, a negative situation. Russia is not all-powerful. That's, that's something uh, some people sometimes forget. President Donald Trump has now abrogated the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, which has caused international condemnation and instability, particularly in Europe. You live in the EU. How would you describe the political climate in Europe regarding the U.S. ending this treaty? This may go down in history as the definitive act that led to the breakup of the Atlantic Alliance that was created after 1945. 
the reaction, especially in Germany, keep in mind, since that unilateral Trump, all the European governments, but Germany, France especially, the UK is, is a mixed bag on, under Theresa May because they want to cully up to, uh, to Trump and get you know, a trade alliance with the US on special British terms when they leave the European Union. But uh, the European industry is completely opposed to this unilateral illegal act under international law of tearing up a treaty that the US had agreed to. And they did so not on any legal grounds that Iran had violated the treaty. They had been certified by the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna as being compliant right up to the, uh, to the moment that Trump tore up the treaty. So what this is doing is preparing a kind of color revolution regime change in Iran. John Bolton, the so-called national security advisor, uh, this rather dangerous neocon who you know, has said on record that we should just bomb Iran, to, you know, get rid of the problem that way. He now is, is together with Pompeo as Secretary of State, another neocon, uh, and the new head of the CIA. This is an aggressive uh, grouping, a foreign policy grouping, that uh, really is out to get close to Netanyahu and Israel and the Likud war party there, and to prepare for massive destabilization in Iran. And I think what they're going to do is use sanctions. So by, by tearing up the nuclear treaty of 2015, they are opening the door to reinstitute these sanctions in a, in a vicious way, including trying to get the European governments to agree to break off the SWIFT interbank payments, which they did the in 2014. The head of Atomic Energy Organization of Iran said that the EU plans to reactivate a 1996 blocking statute that would prohibit EU companies from complying with U.S. sanctions on Iran. Do you think that Europe will break with the U.S. sanctions policy against Iran? Yes and no. That blocking decision was passed by the EU governments, but in a way that it only covers, here's the, the diabolical thing with this, sanctions are a form of economic warfare, which are a form of warfare. And we should be very clear about this. This isn't just, uh, I spank you because you've been a bad boy, Iran, or something like that. This is warfare, financial and economic warfare, as we had uh, during Nazi Germany in, in the Second World War, for example. And the sanctions uh, are such that there are secondary sanctions, and this is the real diabolical thing. So if Europe says, well, Iran has been compliant with the nuclear agreement, they have done nothing in violation, and we honor our treaty, China says the same, Russia says the same, and France says the same, but large corporations like Siemens or uh, Airbus Corporation, which is the German-French primarily corporation, the biggest rival of Boeing for airplanes, if they continue doing multi-billion dollar business 
with Iran or Total, the French oil giant, then the U.S. has threatened secondary sanctions. If any of those companies have business, which they do, they have billion dollar businesses in the United States, then those will be uh, sanctioned as well. So they would lose billions of dollars. And the European Union is not ready to indemnify and, and pay billions of dollars to compensate for that loss. So it's mainly a cosmetic action, a symbolic protest, uh, but it's in reality, it's not going to do much to help the situation. Now, it's interesting that Angela Merkel went last week to China and a few days ago also to Sochi to meet with Putin. And the tone in Germany, the Russia hostile tone in Germany is being significantly toned down, softened in the last days. And I think this is a direct result of the fact they need Russia and they need China to deal with this, this American uh, unilateral madness, I would call it. You know, this uh, you don't know where they're going to hit next. And then you put on top of that the, the trade war of Trump against German, threatening against German car company exports to America, uh, against aluminum, against steel. And this is, you know, it's just it's, it's like madmen in Washington are hitting in every direction and you don't know what's going to happen next when you wake up. So the mood in Europe uh, is more hostile to the United States than I've seen it even during the uh, Iraq War of 2003, where many Germans were opposed to the Bush administration uh, Iraq War. So, William, you're saying that these economic sanctions of the U.S. are actually very effective and that there's not really a way for these other countries to get around this. Is that right? For the short term, it looks very difficult to get around that. Uh, short of really making an economic break with the United States. And you have, you know, you have an incalculable government in Washington and they're capable of doing any wild, crazy thing that uh, 25, 30 years ago, no American president would ever act in such an irresponsible way. So, you know, there would be a diplomatic process, there would be arm twisting pressures put on and so forth, but nothing like what, what Trump is doing. He just, you know, like he gets a whim to throw a hand grenade in the middle of Berlin in the chancellor's office, so he lobs it in, or the same thing with France or whatever. And uh, it's coming to a point where European governments are talking about a new course for Europe, an independent Europe that stands on its own. But in realistic terms, they're not able to be independent of NATO. They wanted to be, that was almost 30 years ago now in, in the early 90s, when the Maastricht uh, negotiations were going on to create a European defense union independent of NATO. And Washington stepped in, the Pentagon said, oh no, you don't. NATO is going to be the defense of Europe. And in the 90s, you had this U.S. incited war in Yugoslavia to make the point clear that you're going to have NATO running this military defense and, and not some European construct. So 
it's, it's, a, it's a nasty, nasty situation. I'm speaking with independent writer and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, Brzezinski's Ghost, the geopolitics of the Trump administration, China, Russia, and Iran. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Iran now sells oil in euros, not dollars. Isn't that right? I haven't been able to confirm that. They have said that they are planning to switch to euros. Uh, They also are probably going to be selling their oil to China in renminbi, yuan. And China now has this oil futures in uh, Shanghai that deals in uh, renminbi priced uh, oil contracts. So they could could quite easily do this. And I think that that's going to happen. And China is the biggest importer of Iranian oil. The point is, Chinese companies that do business in the United States are also vulnerable to these secondary sanctions. Keep in mind the case of uh, the Chinese telecom company that was virtually shut down by the Trump administration for uh, apparently violating Iranian sanctions of two years ago, not even the current sanctions. So because they had U.S. uh, processors inside their Chinese cell phones, we're living in a globalized economy and almost everything is is built uh, with international components. So it's, it's a very diabolical thing as long as the U.S. dollar is the dominant currency of, of trade. So the Europeans, uh, to deal with this, I think would have to develop a central command, uh, like a, a military command during uh, wartime to plan the economic decoupling from the dollar. You know, let's let's see if that uh, begins to develop, but uh, it's it's a very, very difficult problem. Very nasty. What the U.S. Keep in mind that only since uh, 2001 has the U.S. Treasury become a essential component of the uh, National Intelligence Council that uh, with the CIA and the NSA and all these other agencies, because the the Treasury has these financial warfare uh, weapons that you know that sanction all the. Uh, Russian billionaires uh, that have any connection at all with Putin or with Russian uh, aluminum industry and things like that, and can just bring them to a a complete collapse within days. Well, right. You've just mentioned the sanctions on the Russian oligarchs. Now, that's having a big effect, isn't it? It's difficult because uh, somehow the Russians were expecting this. They have been quietly preparing their own alternative to an internal interbank uh, electronic trading system to replace the SWIFT. The Chinese have done a similar thing. So uh, hopefully what it will lead to is that the Russian oligarchs that had billions of their dollars offshore outside of Russia will uh, be forced to repatriate uh, at least a good share of that back into Russia to boost the Russian economy. But it's right now, it's semi-stable, I would call it. 
the worst seems to be over with that last round of sanctions, but uh, they could be renewed any, any second. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo voiced a total of 12 draconian conditions that Iran must promise to fulfill in order for the U.S. to return to the Iran nuclear deal. Are these demands realistic, or do they constitute an undeclared war on Iran? Uh, I would say the latter. They, they raise demands that have nothing to do with the original treaty. For example, the original treaty did not cover uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles if Iran wants to make them non-nuclear and have uh, you know, some kind of a missile capability to deter attacks from Israel or whoever, even Saudi Arabia, you know, a fellow OPEC member. That wasn't uh, forbidden with the nuclear treaty. Uh, it was only the enrichment of uranium in the preparations for weapon-grade uranium uh, and, and bomb production that was, that was forbidden and agreed to by Iran. So, and also another demand of, of Pompeo of, of Washington is, is that Iran completely get out of Syria. Well, they're in Syria at the invitation of the Syrian government. So that's none of the U.S. business, you know, if they're in Syria. What is that? It's not a strategic national security threat of the United States of America. It is, however, a thorn in the side of Saudi Arabia, one of the most corrupt regimes in, in uh, the Middle East and a longtime ally of the United States since 1945. And Prince uh, bin Salman, the next uh, future king, uh, is very tight with Netanyahu in Israel, with Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of, of uh, Trump, and with Trump himself. And they are out to get Iran incapacitated in one way or another, as is Netanyahu. Netanyahu has openly called uh, many times in the past for bombing of Iran to get the U.S. to bomb, of course, not Israel. Uh, you know, let, let the big guys do it and take the hit. So the problem is Iran is, is not Iraq. Iran is a powerful state with a deeply entrenched defense system. And of course it would do huge damage if, if there was a shooting war against Iran, but uh, I think Iran would somehow survive. And then the whole Middle East would uh, go up in flames with sabotage, irregular warfare, asymmetrical responses by the Iranian the Republican Guards, who knows what. So this is really madness what the Trump administration is playing with. The unilateral recognition of Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel is something no American president previously has even entertained doing. And now the uh, provocations against Iran with the nuclear treaty. So we're coming into a phase of world geopolitics that's hyper-unstable, I would locate it to the fact that the power base, the economic power base of the U.S. oligarchy, the, the powers that be, if you want to call them that, the, the characters like Bill Gates or uh, the circles around the Rockefeller establishment, Rockefeller David is now deceased at age 102 or something like that, not the deep state, but the people behind the deep state who tell the deep state what they want. 
they are a failing superpower, a failing superpower worldwide that China is reacting to that, Russia is reacting to that, Iran is reacting to that. So as I describe in a recent article, this is this is a geopolitical challenge that the Trump administration has been put there by not just by the deep state, but by the powers that be, the permanent establishment, if you want to call it that, put there to deal with those three pivotal countries, Iran, Russia, and China. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited Moscow on May 9th. This visit obviously had to do with the future of Syria and Iran. Then Russia announced that it will not sell S-300 missiles to Syria. The U.S. and Israel have been bombing Syria with impunity. How do you interpret these developments? I think Russia, from the beginning of its engagement in Syria in September 2015, consciously made a limited intervention. They do not want to get involved in a wider Middle East war at all. They're not prepared to. And Russia, Putin is one of the few states that can simultaneously have a dialogue with Bashar al-Assad of Syria, with the Iranians, as well as with Netanyahu. There are one million Russian Jews who emigrated to Israel after the collapse of the Soviet Union, or Russian nationals. So that's a little bit of a political lever that, that the Russians have inside Israel. Not to exaggerate it, but it's, it's, a, it's a factor. And I'm not sure, there's several arguments. One is that uh, the Syrian Air Force and Air Defense uh, is able, at their current state of, of, of the art, able to handle the, the oncoming missiles. The other is that there are other technologies that are more effective than the S-300 uh, anti-aircraft batteries of Russia. It's a transition time right now. I think Russia is trying to find a way to somehow calm this thing down short of war. And Russia certainly does not want a nuclear uh, eyeball to eyeball with Washington. Those are the two nuclear powers in the world who have the capability to not only annihilate each other, but the entire planet, and they know it. So the Russians are being very conservative. They're trying to get the Iranians to respect certain rules of engagement, not to come onto the Golan Heights with their advisors and so forth, and to allow only Syrian Arab army forces to be on Syrian territory in the area of the Golan Heights and not... Hezbollah and not Iranian, which is something the Israelis are uh, very much uh, against. So I think behind the scenes, there is a lot of uh, negotiating going on between uh, Putin and Netanyahu. Uh, Netanyahu is trying to optimize his situation, uh, as he always does. And it's, it's, uh, it's highly dangerous, and it's one where Russia doesn't want to unnecessarily escalate the danger. So a lot of people were disappointed. I think there are valid arguments one can make for that Russian decision not, not to send the S-300 
And it's not even clear that the Syrians had expected those. It was just a discussion item in the general debate. In your article, Brzezinski's Ghost Shapes Washington-Eurasia Geopolitics, you write that if we step back from the specific details of each country and Washington actions against each, we see that the three Eurasian powers, Russia, China, Iran, are being systematically targeted and so far with varying degrees of success. Yeah. What was Paul Wolfowitz's defense planning guidance for 1994 to 1999, and how is it driving U.S. foreign policy today? Sure. Let's go back to why I titled the article Brzezinski's Ghost Shaping U.S. Uh, policy in Eurasia. In his 1997 book, Zbigniew Brzezinski, The Grand Chessboard, American Primacy and Its Geostrategic Imperatives, Brzezinski says that the imperative for the United States as sole superpower is that no Eurasian challenger emerges capable of dominating Eurasia and therefore challenging America. Now, he's not even talking about a military threat. He's talking about challenging and he said, potentially the most dangerous scenario would be an anti-hegemonic, i.e. anti-U.S. coalition, united not by ideology, but by complementary grievances, a grand coalition of China, Russia, and perhaps Iran. And to avert this will require skill on the part of the U.S. to put pressure on China, Russia, and Iran all simultaneously. This if you step back and look at the Trump policy since coming into office, is very much the bottom line of, of Trump geopolitics. They've escalated the attacks on Russia, no matter what Trump says about how the Russiagate scandals were all hoped up by the Democrats uh, to discredit Trump's presidency. The reality of the matter is Trump and his administration have escalated the sanctions on Russia. They have uh, put enormous NATO pressure on the doorstep of Russia with troop deployments in Poland and elsewhere in the Baltic republics. They have targeted China with trade sanctions or threats of trade sanctions. Now they're in a, a little bit of a holding pattern. But with China, Washington has been very careful not to escalate too fast on all three at the same time. So they put pressure on Putin, then seem to back off. Then they put pressure on Iran, and not really back off, but uh, not escalate for a few days. And the same thing with China. But with China, this is in the U.S. defense doctrine that was released by Defense Secretary Mattis uh, earlier this year, that the major strategic threat for U.S. militarily are China and Russia. Now, the U.S. geopolitical policy on this is the so-called Wolfowitz Doctrine, which under George W. Bush became the Bush Doctrine, just to flatter him up a little bit, but Wolfowitz was the Deputy Secretary of Defense under Bush. And in 92, Wolfowitz was assistant to Dick Cheney as Defense Secretary under Bush Sr., and he was uh, commissioned with writing what became known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine, that unilateralism, in other words, America decides whatever it damn well wants to, and 
then using preemptive war was central to U.S. policy. So that basically is, is the Wolfowitz Doctrine that was re-doctored under George W. Bush by Condoleezza Rice and, and others. I'm speaking with independent writer and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, Brzezinski's Ghost, the geopolitics of the Trump administration, China, Russia, and Iran. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So then, would you say that aside from the Trump administration scandals and the Russiagate and all the rest of it, that the Trump administration is basically on the same imperialist path that the U.S. has been on for decades. There really isn't a change in geopolitics. There is no change in geopolitics. It's it's the American century policy, the uh, sole superpower policy. And it's kind of not the classical British imperialism where you have troops on the ground in every country, but it's it's a control through financial means, the dollar is reserve currency, it's a control through the threat of military intervention by the U.S. or its allies, NATO, and through that maintaining this, this global domination. And anyone who seems to threaten that, they reserve the right to preempt that, that is, declare war without going to the United Nations Charter and the Security Council debates or anything, they just do it, okay? Iraq is, is a pain in the neck for, uh, for what we want to do with the Middle East in terms of military domination of the oil. So we're going to make up some lies that Saddam Hussein is uh, doing this yellow cake in, in Niger and uh, getting ready to make bombs and bomb Washington, D.C., which is a complete fabricated lie by the neocons around the same John Bolton, who is now the security advisor to Trump. So, yes, there is continuity of, of power complete, and it's uh, not at all the case that uh, Donald Trump is draining any swamps. He's, he's filling them with, with uh, more stench than ever, I would say. I saw a tweet by um, former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney about the people Trump was hiring, and, and she said... Here it is. Trump loves the swamp. Yeah, yes. I would say to better understand Trump, you have to look at him through the uh, binoculars of deception. A bodyguard of lies and deception is, is what surrounds the Trump presidency. And he's actually been, from the standpoint of, of the deep state and the, and the powers that be behind the deep state, the permanent establishment, he's been very effective. He's gotten the whole world off balance. Uh, you know, most countries abhor instability, uncertainty, and so forth, because you can't make long-term policy. And now you have instability, uncertainty in every single corner of the, of the planet. You know, I saw a quote from Henry Kissinger, and he was talking about Donald Trump, and he said something like, well, I, I think the world has never seen anything like this. Why, why this could be quite effective. Kissinger met with Trump uh, just after the elections and he gave that interview to the press and he said, give him a chance. Uh, this could be very effective. And uh, I think he knew what he was saying. He knew what he was talking about because uh, the powers that be, you can imagine, 
with all the resources they command, the think tanks, the military industrial complex, the financial levers of the treasury, the banks of Wall Street, the Federal Reserve, all of this is ultimately uh, dominated by them. As we talked about last year, my book, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, the process of systematic takeover of the institutions of government by Wall Street, by these mega banks too big to fail over the past hundred years, has created this situation. And they are determined that no person gets near the White House who's going to be a loose cannon on, on, on their deck. And it's naive to think otherwise at this late stage of, of the process. If you look closely at uh, the gods of money in the history of the last, oh, I would say certainly since 1945, but really the last hundred years since the creation of the Federal Reserve. Oh, that book of your, The Gods of Money, is so fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough. I learned so much from that book. Uh, thank you. Thank you for writing that. Well, thank um, you, Bonnie. To my mind, it's, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite books, if I can have favorite books of mine. It's one where I go most deeply into American history from the time, roughly, of the Civil War and explain some really unknown and very critical to understand aspects of, of that history so that people, what's going on now doesn't come out of the dark blue. What about the U.S. trade war with China? You've, you've mentioned this several times. How vulnerable is China economically, or is it? This is it's a very good question. It's one that I've looked at quite intensively. China has an agenda. The Chinese are long-term strategic thinkers. They very carefully weigh all the options. If you want, you have different factions inside the Communist Party Central Committee that represent different interest groups within China, very much like you have different interest groups, you know, representing the U.S. Congress, or used to back in the, in the 50s, even the 60s. Now it seems to be the interest of big money and, and uh, and multinational corporations who finance elections. So China has a long-term strategy under Xi Jinping to develop new markets for Chinese production in countries that were inaccessible under the Cold War time in Central Asia, in Iran, in Russia, in Mongolia, if you will, and also in Eastern Europe, Hungary, and uh, other countries of Eastern Europe, Serbia, Bulgaria, and, and so forth, and ultimately Germany. So the Chinese long-term strategy is to win Europe as an ally to counterweight the economic and, and political power of the United States so that it's not one superpower dictating to the world. I think that's pretty reasonable, and I think that would be much more healthy for the United States to have Washington's bully game uh, cut down to size. But Chinese have a strategy, it's called Made in China 2025. They, they had one called uh, the World Bank China 2030 report, and that report was done in the previous government before Xi Jinping became 
president in 2013. And essentially that was co-written by Robert Solik and the World Bank. So the end result is that China would simply open itself up, open its financial markets to the West, open its uh, state-owned enterprises to be privatized so that uh, Western multinationals could buy them up and strip them down or do whatever they do in, in these instances, like what they did in the rape of Russia under Yeltsin in the 1990s. So when Xi Jinping came in, he supported a strategy called Made in China 2025. And it's a strategy that China is going to go the next stage of economic development instead of being screwdriver assembly for American car manufacturers or uh, iPhone or whatever, you know, to put them together in an assembly line where the parts come from the United States, Intel and, and others. That China has as priority to develop its own high-tech basis, and they've already done it in high-speed rail technology. Now, many Americans may not be aware of it, but in Europe for the last 25 years, we've had high-speed, I live in Germany as an American, but uh, Europeans have had high-speed rail going from all the major cities in France and in Germany, crisscrossing, and they go sometimes 200 kilometers an hour or uh, 120, 130 miles an hour. And that makes uh, transportation between major urban areas much more economical. China has taken that technology and improved it. And today manufactures their high-speed rail trains, the special tracks that can carry such high speeds, and is exporting that technology to other countries that uh, in uh, the developing world that, that want to you know, have high-speed rail links to, to bring freight and passengers all the way to Russia. So they are doing the same thing in the field of information technology and robotics. I just came across something the other day that uh, China has invested $10 billion, $10 billion in a project that uh, is going to develop artificial intelligence and robots and uh, everything imaginable for automated production and also for military application. They're developing as a high priority uh, a national laboratory for quantum information science in Hefei, uh, near to Shanghai. And they plan to take the global lead in quantum computing. $10 billion for that alone. And it's going to open in two years. So when the Chinese decide on a strategy, they, first of all, make sure that, you know, they've examined it in great detail. They've been talking about this for 10 years that I know of, since I first went to China in 2008, uh, going to the next phase of high-tech uh, industrialization and not just uh, the workshop of the world for American and European companies. So this, the Chinese will not negotiate away. This is the target of the Trump-China trade war. It's the ultimate target, not not these sanctions on, on uh the cell phones and, and so forth that already Trump is, is backing away from. 
it's it's aimed at this high tech graduation of the China 2025 industry four points or uh, self sufficiency in high tech industries that the Chinese are making their priority. So that's non negotiable, and the Chinese have said so. So now it's kind of a cat and mouse game with Trump and the Chinese on secondary issues, but it's by no means settled a done deal. William Engdahl, thank you again so much. Thank you, Bonnie. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and uh, discuss these issues. I've been speaking with William Engdahl. Today's show has been Brzezinski's Ghost, the geopolitics of the Trump administration, China, Russia, and Iran. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. He has an important new book out, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, about how non-governmental agencies have been employed to undermine, destabilize, and overturn national governments, all in the name of spreading democracy. Manifest Destiny is a must-read, as is his Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century. His new book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, is available through his website at williamengdahl.com. That's William, E-N-G-D-A-H-L, dot com. Email him at info at williamengdahl.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yarrow Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life.